0: Hello and welcome to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago, and joining us here is Glenn Fitzgerald. I am here. Also joining us, Jed Brewer. Here is where I am. With us all the way from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Lee Younger.
1: If you think about it, are any of us here? Or is no. that what they want you to believe? I'm That's here. What they...
2: I'm here, but Jed. Is there, but he said he was here, but he's there, I'm here.
3: Right. That's because I enjoy lies.
0: (laughs) Also, Glenn there uh, revealing his belief that he is the geographic center of the universe, and only he is allowed to be here. The rest of you are there. That is how that works. It's Gleniocentric theory. That's good. That's very definitely good. is. <laughs> All right. Before we get anybody burned at the stake, let's move along. <laughs> We've got some great questions. We've got a fun show. We've got an interview with Sarah Zylstra, Gospel Coalition senior writer and co-author of Gospel Bound, a new book out now. Had a very uh, inter- interesting and I think really a uh, really enlightening conversation with Sarah. We'll get to that later. We'll get to some great questions, but first, I'm forced to declare. An emergency, which I think we are uniquely suited for, lying for the common good.
3: (laughs) Ah. A deception emergency. You know,
0: oftentimes the emergency segment is set up for just ridicule or, uh, you know, get-rich-quick schemes, these kind of things. But this is the rare one where I think we can actually do some good in the wider world. And that is because there has been a new... uh, a new conspiracy theory striking the the covid vaccination world mm. uh, we 've had multiple instances uh, in Ohio and some other places of people going to like public uh, meetings about the the vaccine, some of these being uh people with medical degrees and stating with absolute certainty that we can 't give people the vaccine because it makes them magnetized and then <laughs> Failing to stick pieces of metal to themselves in public. Now, dear listener, you might look at that and say, well, we have to we have to correct this with with facts. We have to go on a very kind of uh, MSNBC NPR style. Uh, We talked to several experts who actually believe that uh, you can't transmit magnetism via via uh, vaccination. And we'll be back with more after that. That, and here's the thing we know. We've been doing this for a long time. It doesn't work. People right. are into that and not going to work. They're not going to believe it doesn't make you magnetized. So the only option I think we have is to judo this thing and say, sounds like a bonus. Oh. Yeah. Right. I lose my key ring almost once a day. So you're saying I can't get the novel coronavirus and I can just stick the metal key ring to my arm and I'm good. Fantastic.
2: Well, I have a lot of questions. First of all, can I just inject magnets to get rid of the virus? Oh. Like right? tremendous magnets, Glenn? Mm-hmm. Tremendous, tremendous magnets. Just depends on how dedicated you are to the scientific method. Let me say this. I am prepared to grind up some magnets and snort them if that's what <laughs> it'll <laughs> take. And that is not, not what, what it will take. take. That's <laughs> also
0: not what a vaccination <laughs> is.
1: i like the idea of of sweetening the deal of vaccinations for people by telling them things that they they just already want to happen like then like calories from donuts are no longer a thing oh you can just eat all the donuts you want
2: well yeah you could tell them it will give you a magnetic personality
3: Sure. Sure. I, know, I really like, like Lee's
0: idea. Could we make the the COVID-19 vaccine kind of the the fat the flat tummy influencer tea of oh. 2021? Like there's no way yeah. this can do what it claims, but we got a couple of Kardashians to just pimp it a little bit. Well, I was just gonna say, you just uh, like you just start uh putting out these these
1: memes of somebody with like the the eight pack and and a little band-aid on their shoulder and they're like <laughs> I got the COVID vaccine and look at these
3: abs. It's the Vax pack. That's what he's rocking now. There
0: you go. (laughs) That's
2: it. Body by Pfizer. (laughs) 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 This might be a slightly old reference, but could we get Tawny contained in a sports car? Tawny contained in a sports car and she's draped across it in a slinky dress and just. (laughs) Welcome to our Christian
0: podcast. (laughs)
2: <laughs> just the, just the word vaccine across the screen. I think that'd be pretty effective. Sure, sure. It, I mean, taking these to people in the '80s, it would be effective. I was
0: gonna say. So, go ahead and preface that with this might be an old <laughs> reference. I'm on the uh, the Wikipedia. I'm on the Wikipedia here. Uh, here I go. Here I go. Get on my own by White Snake, released in 1987. Yeah. So the question is. How much of our current listenership was not born? (laughs) Most.
3: Some of us were were busy going down the only road we've ever known, Matthew. That's
0: right. I may have been, but I was two, so I didn't know a lot of roads.
3: (laughs) Well, here's my question for, for the brain trust here. Is there a chance that if I get the Pfizer and the Moderna, and Ooh. the AstraZeneca, and the Johnson and Johnson, and you know what? I'm gonna go crazy. I'm gonna get the Synovax too. If I get all of them, do I become Magneto? Mm. Wow,
0: oh. nice! You certainly become a Pokemon master because you collected them all.
3: <laughs> so I
0: think you get some kind of like decorative, uh, a, a decorative Pokeball with that.
3: I mean, if if I would even settle for just resembling Ian McKellen, like I'm, I'm sure. going to. Certainly you know, to, to make some, some compromises here. I don't, I don't have to be young Magneto. I'm, I'm willing to, to be experienced Magneto. I'm, I'm cool with that. I think, Jed, we could probably
1: get you, like, a, a plastic version of that helmet that he wears off Amazon. You could just wear that around.
2: <laughs> yeah. Also, I think if you take all the vaccines like that and sneeze on somebody, you could cure them.
0: Whoa, that's a superpower, dude. Right. It is on, a superpower. Yeah. What it's not for legal reasons is medical advice. <laughs> <laughs> Don't sneeze on people anymore. We're past <laughs> that as a culture <laughs> now. Sneezor. <laughs> Sneezor.
1: <laughs> That's
0: <sneeze> it. Or.
4: <laughs> That's the winner
0: right there. <laughs> also, you can't tell me that in the uh the early, the first run like the the 2000s X-Men movies where they just jumped way too many of them too quick in one of those like group fight scenes, there had to be one whose power was uh Curative sneezes because they were scraping <laughs> the bottom of the barrel pretty good.
3: That's true. Well, I think the thing about Sneezor, right, is he can do a few different things with his sneezes. He can, he can heal, but he can also wound because mm. he can transmit magnetic particles through his sneezes and he can control right. what those particles do. So it's, you know, it's almost like tiny, 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 tiny BBs that he's sneezing right. at his enemies. So is his origin
0: me. story that he tried to snort a magnet because he heard on the podcast <laughs> that that's how you get a vaccine, and then he <laughs> developed these <his> abilities. <laughs> it
4: that's
1: is now it. The, the 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 movie opens with moody music and a kid listening to the podcast as he gets on the train, and then just his eyes widen. He's back in the in his bedroom lab, just grinding up fridge magnets
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in a mortar yeah. and pestle.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, the next thing you know, Marvel's going to be ripping us off, fellas.
3: Absolutely. I'm trying to think who of the the current uh, crop of of stars and starlets could adequately portray the grandeur of Sneezor. I'm thinking, uh, that's that's a tough one. Because you, you got to get it right. You know, I mean, there's there's a yeah. certain it's like portraying Batman. There's a certain gravity to this role. You know, you, you don't you don't want to <laughs> yeah. make light of it. You, you don't want an Adam West sneeze or that would just be <laughs> silly. Yeah. Just a big achoo on the screen. <laughs> and every- yeah, the little sign. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the little graphic. We need the dark, gritty, moody Christopher Nolan <laughs> sneeze or. <laughs> yeah. Michael Kane is his allergist. It <laughs> has to be.
2: Well you have to have like the old sneezer and the young sneezer, because you have the origin story and then right, you know right. in, in, then his the dark years that, yes. that happen later, you know.
3: I- I'm so, saying young sneezor is goth Michael Sarah. Wow. Yes. Old Sneezor has to be
2: um gosh, who was I thinking? Christopher Walken. Oh, yes!
3: <laughs> yes!
2: Got to be right. Christopher Walken. That's fantastic.
3: Dude, dude, yes, I can I can see it now. Okay, the poster is like Walken's face, you know, cloaked in shadow. You can only see like one nostril and his eye, and it just <laughs> yeah. says It just says Gazoon Tight. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. That's the
2: home run right there. Doesn't get any better than that. Somehow,
0: we managed to top ourselves in a couple ways in that segment. One, um, Glenn mentioning White Snake was not the the reference that made us all seem oldest. It was, in fact, Jed referring to a 33-year-old Michael Sarah as the young <laughs> version of a character. <laughs> and also, we somehow got from, man, vaccine conspiracies... To pitching uh, Marvel Studios Presents Sneezer or in really <laughs> record time. And on that, I'm going to declare emergency off. Well done. Indeed. Well done all around. If you want more of well, I was going to say more of that, but more of whatever the opposite of that is. Uh, <laughs> finely curated, helpful content that follows a, a pattern of thought. You don't have to be on four different types of cold medicine to follow. You can check out uh, both com slash bridge box for our weekly, our monthly bridge box service, songs, sermons, our entire Bible study uh, archive, lots of great stuff in your inbox every month. You can also join us at facebook.com slash the bridge Chicago on our new night. That's right. The studio heads have rescheduled us. We will now be broadcasting our bridge live service every Sunday night. Oh, wow. At 7 p.m. Central Time. Nice. So do catch us over there. The easiest way to make sure you catch that change is going to be to go over and hit follow at Facebook.com slash TheBridgeChicago. We're going to jump to our first question here. If you hang all this all the way to the end, I'll use some ways to get in touch with this, or you can scroll down into your episode description and click the links you find there. Our first question comes in anonymously and says... I'm not sure if I'm doing this right, but I kept talking to God as if he's my best friend and therapist. Then I also realized that he's God that I'm talking to. Some of these, some of the things I tell him seem just out of bounds, and I got scared of judgment. I don't know how to, to approach this anymore as a friend or as a God that I should be respectful and fearful of. So thank you for your question. It is a really excellent one and a, puts, I think, a really interesting wording to uh, a th- a feeling or thought process a lot of us go through. And Lee, where would we start off? Well, we'd start
1: off uh, actually by saying, you, you know, the your instincts on this are correct, and in, in, in that you you've really just kind of stumbled on the only true way to have an actual relationship with God, which is being completely honest and open because He wants to have a friendship with you. the The bummer here is that um, your initial instinct, which is the true one is kind of getting hijacked by something somebody told you about God at some point, that somehow you're supposed to feel afraid or you're supposed to somehow feel in trouble and stuff like that. I mean, when you, when you actually just read the Gospels, what you find is you, you start looking at at who Jesus was and the way that he treated people, you find out a couple of things. One, he can read everyone's mind. He there's so many times where he just looks at somebody and says, why are you thinking these things? And he fills in the blanks of like, he looks at someone and literally knows what's going on inside their brain. So one thing we know is you can't actually hide anything from God anyway. He already knows everything. But two, we find Jesus hanging out with people that everybody else would have put in trouble. Uh, we find we find him uh, approving of and sharing his time with and getting accused of—he was accused of being the friend of sinners, and he was. We see him in friendship with people. The guy that can read everybody's minds is is getting along the best with the people that everybody hates the most or the people that everybody would want to condemn. And that gives us a really, really cool clue of of what kind of a dude Jesus is, what kind of a person God is, that he already knows everything anyway— he has heaps of patience and gentleness and grace and forgiveness, and he calls his guys friends over and over and over again so your 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 initial instinct of like I just talk to God, I just tell him what's up, I just tell him how things are but i'm I'm worried that that's the wrong way to approach him. I need to re- approach him with more respect and and more fear and more you know I, I need to you know wh- whatever it is condemn myself that's because somebody else has put has like I said hijacked that initial that initial instinct of what God is like and and taking you down a road that that's actually not going to serve you what what God wants is a friendship with you um he knows everything that we think he knows all the motivations behind all the things that we think and he's filled with patience what I would say is and, and it might be a deal where you need to look at Uh, you know, some of the people in your life who are kind of defining who God is or what the scriptures mean. I mean, maybe that's a Bible study or a small group leader. Maybe it's a church. I mean, maybe maybe it was parents or something like that. But you have this You've got this heartbeat for the exact friendship that God wants with you. And what we may need to do is to seriously call into question some some of these ideas that, that are being fed to you that that are not a clear representation of of who the Lord is. But you're on the right track. He wants an honest and open friendship with you.
0: That's a fantastic place to start that off. And Jed, I, I really like what Lee is saying about all of that, but he made the point, and it's an important one, one I think we're picking up here, of uh, God already knows all the stuff you're telling him that's out of bounds. So we, we probably have two layers of that one is, uh, you would say, I don't want God to know that about me, which is a little, uh, doesn't hold up to scrutiny, but we've all felt that. And then there's maybe another aspect of, am I being offensive by saying it to sure. God? So where do we pick up with this idea of out of bounds?
3: That's a great question. Well, to repeat what Lee was saying, because I think it's really important, um, you know, uh, theology teaches generally that God is omniscient, that God knows all things. And so if that's true, and and again, pretty much anyone who would describe themselves as being, you know, a Christian in the orthodox sense of that word believes that that God knows all things. So if God knows all things, then— he, he already knows about your funky attitudes he already knows mm-hmm. about um uh, the, the things that you are inclined to think of as out of bounds he's He's fully aware of them so the the first thing that we can definitely remove for sure is there's no possible way for him to be shocked right by by anything that you might say. there's no possible way for him to be surprised by anything that you might say because again he he already knows it so it's worth asking in in what other way. Could it be out of bounds? Well, I think that there are maybe two options we can look at. I don't think either really hold up, but it's worth examining. The first would be the idea of like, well, you don't talk about, you know, um, you know, like with your boss, there there are details about your personal life that you you don't talk about or, or you probably shouldn't talk about. You know, I mean, there's kind of we recognize that that there's a a gravity to this relationship and things that would be overly familiar. I'm I'm not going to talk about with this person because um, uh, it just it's inappropriate to the relationship. We just we we wouldn't do that, and, and and I get that, and I can see where you could look at God that way, and and almost like. Like I'm, I would be disrespecting his grandeur. I'd be di- disrespecting, you know, how big and important he is by uh, approaching him with topics that are that are overly um, overly sensitive or or overly um, blunt or, or or whatever. But I I don't think God feels that way. Uh, the, what the what Jesus teaches us is that God is aware of and interested in the smallest possible details of our lives. Uh, The Bible says that God has numbered the very hairs on our heads. Um, And I think the other thing about you is the, how to put this, there are things that we are inclined to be squeamish about, mostly because of kind of the way that we were raised and the cultures we were raised in, and God doesn't share that squeamishness. One of the things about being the creator of all things is you you kind of – you aren't really squeamish because you get how all of it works. You, you, you understand, right. you know, all things. I mean, like, um, you know, not to be gross, but like if you go to a urologist, they are not uh, – squeamish about the functioning of the urinary tract because they deeply understand it. It's a part of what they do. Well, everything is a part of what God does, so there's nothing for him to be squeamish about. So kind of the the only other way that things could be out of bounds would be that God would just be offended. And I don't think there's a way for God to be offended by the subject matter— um. again, because that's really more in like, it, it, would it be too lowbrow to talk to God about or something that God would be squeamish about? And that doesn't really hold up. So the only other option in terms of God being offended would be us approaching him with a funky attitude. But again, whatever attitude we have, he's already aware of. And us pretending that we don't have an attitude is kind of trying to play make-believe with God, which is just kind of an odd thing. So the thing, just like Lee's saying, the, the thing I would encourage is, man, God just wants to be a friend to you. You, you, mm. you really don't need to be concerned about um, that. I would be out of bounds in the things I'm telling God, or that He'd be offended, or He would, you know, feel put off. But there's one other big part that I think really does matter, which is, are you offended by it? Mm. Are you put off by the things that you're bringing up to God? Because I think that happens a lot, and I think that that indicates something to us. And one distinct possibility is. That in your head, I don't want to be the kind of person who would feel this way, whether it's pettiness or resentment or anger or lust or frustration or whatever. It's really easy for any of us to to be like, I don't want to have to admit this to myself. Um, you know, for me, Jed, like I can be an insanely petty person. I don't like that about myself, but I really super can be really, really petty. And here's the key thing. I can't solve a problem I'm not willing to admit I have, Um, and it's going to be pretty hard for me to get God's help in solving a problem I'm not willing to admit that I have. I think one of the beautiful things about God's omniscience, one of the beautiful things about the freedom to go to God in prayer with anything is he's not put off by it. So if I've got something like I feel silly about how petty I am, but I know it's causing me problems, God gets it. He already knows he's not going to be looking down on me, He's not going to be making fun of me. And he knows why I'm petty. He knows what's driving that. He gets where that's coming from, and he would like to help me move forward on that. So let him be the friend to you that he wants to be
0: a really, really excellent layer to add on top of that. And Glenn, where would we close this question out?
2: Well, I agree. Uh, these fellows have really given uh, a, a very detailed analysis of the fact that that God just is not insulted by your approach to this. And I agree with Lee 100%. This is the exact right approach. You started on the right foot. Uh, don't let anybody take you uh, off of that uh, uh path that you're on. Uh, and in fact, I think we could go a step further to, to say that it would be—you know, that God is not insulted by the way you're doing it, but that it would be insulting for you to approach it in a false front of politeness, mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, acting as though you could trick God into thinking you were, you know— Better behaved and have more deep thoughts or whatever than what you really have that 's insulting to god it's 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 a you know a, assuming that he won't get what you what's going on there or that he would be impressed by fakeness that's <laughs> that doesn 't make any sense to me um but i'm just you know i 'm really just taking what you 're saying and holding a mirror up to to it to reflect it back to you if it doesn't sound you know, uh, legit to you coming back, then I'd say you were on the right track in the first place, as as Lee was saying there. Um, I think we can actually, you know, we want to nail this down theologically, I mean, because we've gone through the logic of it, just the, the just the basic reasoning of it. Theologically, I think it's important for believers to start by asking themselves, what is the picture of what God ideally wants in the relationship that we have with him. And the the good news is that we already know what that is, because uh, he created a, a world that gives us that perfect picture. There's Adam, there's Eve, there's the Garden of Eden, they're walking, they're talking, they're naked, they're unashamed. How God made it to be. This is what God wanted. If your relationship with God looks a lot like that now, where you're just unashamed and you're not filtering and you're right. not trying to be fake and you're just walking and talking and interacting, that's actually getting you back to the ideal thing mm. that God was trying to set up, again, in, in the Garden of Eden. Uh, 1 John chapter 4, if you go towards the end of that chapter, um, it, it says that... that when we have love between us and god uh when when that relationship is good and strong and there's a love bond there it, it it's talking about how love is perfected in us or completed in us uh but it's 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 giving us this idea that love peels away layers and we go through layers and 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 transformation and all of that because of love, and that when we see that transformation happening and when we know that love uh, is in there, where, where God loves us and is changing us and we love him back and we're submitting to that process of transformation, uh, 1 John chapter 4 says that for when we know that love is there, that we should have no fear of judgment at all, uh, and that's starting with uh, around verse 16— there And then verse 18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love, that's that completed love, that transforming love, drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment mm-hmm. the one who fears has not been perfected in love we love because he first loved us so that's really the measure here if you're in a love bond relationship with god and you're peeling away layers and working things out and and you're you know you're you're being transformed within that then there that love should be driving out all of that fear don't let anybody come in and put that fear on you You're doing great, and we've got your back all the way.
0: Absolutely right. An excellent place to close that out, and a great job by all these guys on that question. We're going to move on to our Say That interview this week. I had a chance to sit down and chat with Sarah Ekoff-Zylstra, who is a senior writer for the Gospel Coalition and the co-author of the new book, Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. It's a very, it's a very enlightening conversation, very interesting one, and I want to give you a little bit of context for it because when I sat down to read the, the book, it's, it's lovely, it's all you know, theologically. I don't disagree with any of it. There are some things perspective wise where I do disagree with it, and that's what I think makes this an interesting conversation. Um, that Sarah will talk about how she and her co-author sat down to write this book because they looked at a lot of the problems with uh the church that we talk about a lot on this show, uh first and foremost with the fact that there's a lot less people in it than there used to be, it turns out. Um and she comes to some they come to some different conclusions than we do on this show. There's a uh, there's chapters about how this uh this mega church is doing this one program really well and what can we learn from that? And there's a chapter about um the Southern Baptist Convention partnering with people for disaster relief and why can can we put Stuff like that, Friend Center, which is a very useful conversation to have. Now, as you may have gathered from listening to the show for a while, and I don't want to put any words in my co mouth, but I think they'll join me on this, our answer to megachurches and the Southern Baptist Convention, for the most part, would be they should all be forcibly divested of all their assets and just kind of go sit in corners and think about what they've done. Um, but that's not really an entirely actionable plan yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very interesting conversation with someone who has put a lot of thought into the, the kind of questions we're talking about of why are people leaving the church what can uh, the body do to become a more welcoming place to be more servant-hearted to do things that are a little different and just come to for, through their own experience and the way they come it, to some different answers and I think it's a, a conversation worth listening to and I got a lot out of it I hope you will too and we will go to that right now So the book is, is gospel-bound, and it's, it's a very interesting kind of collection of stories. And you mentioned that you, you and your, your co-author set out to want to tell a different type of story. What was the type of story you wanted to tell, and why did a different type of story about Christianity need telling?
5: Yeah, what a good question. So Colin Hansen, who's my co author, and I are both trained as journalists. So we um, both went to journalism school, we both worked in journalism. Um, I still do clearly he does as well. So we, um, and we have noticed, maybe especially in the past year, but even before that, that um, news always tends negative. And I don't think that's, a reason, you know, it's not because journalists are monsters and want us to all be afraid. It's just like, that's what makes the news. That's what people click on. That's what sells. And ultimately, I mean, news is a business. They do have to keep the lights on. So they do have to sell what people will read. Um, and so we we gravitate to those stories. Those stories make us anxious and that makes us want to know more and that makes us click on them and that's what brings in the money. So that's the cycle that happens there. The trouble is like once we went to a phone in your pocket, um, we no longer do like, oh, I, I watched the cable news at night and then I put that down and went on with the rest of my day or I read the newspaper with breakfast and I put that down and I went on with the rest of my day. Now it's just a constant of negative news all the time. And I think what that does is warp the way we see the world. So now it seems like we live in a terrible world um, where before maybe things were terrible, but hey, at least your neighbors around you were doing well. And in general, for the most part, your neighbors around you still are pretty stable. So we wanted to tell a different story, um, one that paints the world a little more realistically, and also that tells a different story about Christianity, which of late, because there's such a gap between the number of journalists who are Christians and who do go to church, there's just a growing gap of, it's hard to write stories about a religion you don't know very much about, it's hard to write charitably about something that you're like, you guys seem crazy and homophobic and racist. And so the stories I write are going to reflect that. And we know that's not what Christianity is at all. And so we wanted to tell a story, a true story, like this is what Christianity actually is. And this is what it looks like being played out and it's happening all over the place. So it's not like you don't know the news, you just don't know the whole news. And we'd like to introduce you to the other part of what Christianity looks like being lived out on the ground.
0: I think that's it's a, a great goal, and I I think it's a very interesting point you make about the other part of Christianity. You you start the book in the introduction, you and your co-author with some statistics about uh, the the changing religious demographics in America, particularly the the rise of the the nuns as they call them, which works a lot better in print than in spoken n o n e s. Uh, there's <laughs> yeah. a, I'm sure there's a rise of the other type of nuns, and we celebrate them as well. But, <laughs> so the, the rise of, of, of nuns and people walking away right from the church, and there's Is the book an attempt to, to deal with that, to reckon with that, to maybe look at some solutions for that? And if so, how do you think the stories you're bringing address some of those things?
5: Yeah, that's so interesting. I was just looking at some statistics and while the nuns pile is getting bigger, the atheist pile is not. Mm. So back in the 1990s, about 6% of the country said, Hey, we just don't believe in God at all. We're atheists. And that's actually about the same 6% today. So the growing number of nuns are people who say my religion is nothing in particular, but that doesn't mean I don't believe in God. And it doesn't mean I don't have a desire for some sort of a spiritual life. And one of the things I think that they're walking away from is sort of this portrayal of Christianity as archaic, Um, the the very public fall of some of these very public figures, um, the sins of, say, Ravi Zacharias um, being exposed or the deconstruction, say, of a Joshua Harris is really, you know, it sets an example for people and it may be scares some people off. So there's sort of a the 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 say of the Christian Church doesn't always match the do of the Christian Church, and I think that's what's pushing some people away. So certainly, one thing we hope this book would do was to help match up. There are for people who are bound to the gospel where the do matches the say, um, that is something that we're we're wanting to show people. like this is this is what it looks like lived out. Um, and if you ca- came into this community, it wouldn't it doesn't always look like a Ravi Zacharias. Sometimes it looks like that girl next street. Next, you know, down the street, who's bringing a meal to someone, or babysitting kids for free, or um, just living in joy through a difficult situation.
0: Yeah, is there a tension in that with that that ground level thing you're describing? But these are part of institutions. There's a, a description in the book about the the incredible number of volunteers who went to do disaster relief under the auspices mm-hmm. of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I'm sure those are all wonderful people, and that's a wonderful thing to do, but that doesn't change someone who might be LGBT or really prioritize racial justice, looking at the things the SBC does and says on a denominational level and being put off by that. So are, are these an attempt to counterbalance, or is it just filling in more of a more of a full picture?
5: Yeah, I think... It's, it's trying to fill in the full picture. Um, so it's hard to judge a whole denomination on what a leader says about one thing at one point in time. Um, but of course, we do it all the time, especially since that's all we're ever hearing from the news. But there's such a richer layer under that. So the Southern Baptist Convention is the convictions of its leaders and maybe the stands they're taking on things. But boy, that's so 30,000 feet. Um, so if you come all the way down to like, what's the Southern Baptist Convention doing on a Friday Friday? Um, that might be serving hot meals to people whose homes are covered with floodwaters. Um, it might be like, you know, opening up a, or running a food pantry, or it might be, um, all manner of things, driving people to the doctor's appointments. Like if you come all the way down to the the level of the local church and what that looks like, that's something that that's probably going to be deeply attractive as those people just live out their Christianity in a daily rhythm.
0: And you also mentioned um, some experiences with other non-American Christian groups, and these would be people who are um, seeing real uh, persecution in in China, and I believe in Kuala Lumpur and the Philippines. Is there a, a, a relation between the way these communities are living out versus the way some American communities are living out and the desire for institutional power and prestige? Are you seeing that both abroad and home? Is there a difference when people let go of that versus when it is a we're feeding the poor, we are doing these things, but we also really want to be influential and we want to get our people elected? Is there, I know that's a big, messy thing to ask you to unplay, but is there something going on there?
5: Well, yeah, it is a big, messy thing, isn't it? What's so interesting about that is like in China, um, they never really had that. I mean, there was a, you know, it's only been since the 80s and 90s that they were able to worship. I mean, quote unquote, freely, um, really all, all the house churches are, unless you pledge your allegiance to the communist party, you're still illegal. You can still be questioned by police. You still really aren't allowed to, and can be turned in for renting a building. Um, so I, so it's hard to say because they never really had that institutional platform. I guess that the dichotomy in China would be those in the three self church who did sort of, you know, try. Uh, pledge allegiance to the Communist Party, judging that that was a better way to go, certainly a physically safer way to go um, to get some of the, I don't know if they had power from that, but they definitely had more protection from going that direction. So there's a split in the Chinese church there between those who went that direction and those who chose, you know, we're going to be the underground route. But I don't think that's the same thing that we're facing. I mean, they're just so many light years away from the freedoms that we have in America. And with that, the privileges and the wrestling through like, well, how does that play out politically? Um, it's just a different picture.
0: Yeah, it really is. And I, I, reading through the book, there is, you know, it is, it is written as it all, as all things are from the perspective of you and your co-author. and for the, for an audience and you guys work for the, for the gospel coalition. And I, I, being that I lean the other way on some things, it leans a bit conservative to me, which is yeah. perfectly valid. And we, we want to be clear about those things. There's, there's nobody has a view from nowhere. So it's, carefully reason on that is are there some things that the the church is sticking to and, and I use the church obviously that's a big term but people institutions sticking to that are not really gospel bound and are more cultural that are that they have uh, kind of raised up as you're pointing out to the point of a non-negotiable an issue is that something you found in other places where people were willing to let go of that there's a story in the book of a a black congregation and a white congregation who who joined together are there some things people need to let go of to maybe get to this place?
5: Yes. I love that you're saying that. That's I think that is is totally true. One reason that Christianity is so flexible and has been able to grow so much and spread so widely is because it can come into any culture. But that also means that it exists inside of that culture. So I was just talking with JD Greer, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and one of his challenges to them is we have to think about what are we going to be first? Southern or Baptist? Like you have to think about the way that your culture, we better be Christians first before any sort of Southern culture is his message to them. And as I was thinking about that, you're exactly right. Like, don't we think about the Dutch reformed or the Irish Catholic or the Russian Orthodox or the um, English Anglican? Like everybody's got a, a spot where they are. That's just we just, it's just true. We just live in a space and a time. So certainly we're all full of our own culture, but I think you're exactly right. And I think that's part of the deconstruction of a lot of people of their faith is trying to figure out what's the kernel of truth here. Like what's the boiled down rock bottom foundational, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved versus all those other things maybe even good things that my culture has tried to put up as props to help us live a godly life, but that rose too far um, to the point of becoming a law where scripture didn't require that.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. You've mentioned deconstruction a couple of times, and it's obviously a very big topic currently, something a lot of people are are going through. And part of what it seems like to me, you're doing the book is really trying to break down uh, as you put it, gospel bound things to some very bedrock principles for people who are maybe a little bit older, maybe not going through that. Don't, uh, some of us, like my experience was, was being converted at 16 and not having anything to need to deconstruct. and the whole thing. Is there too much fear around deconstruction? Can we, can we trust God and trust people to, to let some deconstruction
5: happen? What a good question! Ooh, let me let me think about that. I think um, I think the fear of it is, you know, if I as a parent or a teacher, I'm watching someone younger walk through that, or or even someone young, like watching an older brother walk through that or something. Um, it's scary to me because I love you. And the last thing I want is for you to lose your salvation because I know the joy of the Lord and the security of belonging to him and the future that I'm hoping for. And I really want that for you too. So I can see it's like kind of a little bit like walking, watching your kid walk out into the street, right? Like there's that knee jerk of like, don't do it, come back, you know? So I think that's what a lot, maybe some of the panic is over. Of course. And maybe that leads to wrong reactions. I'm sure that it does. But of course, God is holding everybody. And like God is, you know, your older brother or your student, or your child is in his hands. So the 100%, no question about it, best thing you can do is to pray for that person or that child and to, and to pray that God would show himself to them and to show, you know, provide the answers that they're looking for Um, and to engage in gentle and ongoing conversation with them to show Jesus to them. Um, But maybe not to worry about them because it's not on you, whether that person is saved or not, that's, you know, that's God calling him to them. So you can't save somebody. You can just um, show Jesus to them as best that you can. So I think that could take down the worry level a little bit.
0: Yeah. Is, is it fair to say that some of the things you, you chronicle and experience in the book are maybe not in the exact way we're thinking about it, but are Christianity deconstructed? It is, You mean, you mentioned Mm -hmm. the, the SBC, you mentioned Summit Church, there's, there's big churches, but there's also little things going on in houses and people serving things. Is, is that a kind of deconstructed
5: Christianity? What an interesting question! I don't know if I would have described it that way, but you're right that we're boiling it down to, you know, p- take care of the poor and the weak, and love your enemy, and suffer with joy, and live with honor, and extend hospitality—like those things that we boil down to—they're just straight out of Romans. Um, and so maybe in some way it's like a, it's like a, ah, like a boiling down or coming back or a finding the pearl in it. So um, I guess it depends what you're deconstructing. Um, So if you're deconstructing things that are wrong or unbiblical, then I hope it is. Or extra there,
0: as you pointed out, there are things cultural or denominational. They're not necessarily wrong and may be wrong for everyone, but they are not not essential and not part of the gospel. And I think there's a lot of, of good stuff in the book that gets to the heart of that. And I think that's about the end of our time. But Sarah, thank you so much for joining us
5: so fun. I could do this every week. You're
0: so fun to talk to. Well, come on back. We, we, (laughs) you know, my other co-hosts are acting the fool all the time. We may have an opening. (laughs) All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sarah. Again, I thought it was a very interesting one, one I enjoyed having a lot, and I hope you got some ideas out of listening to that We are going to jump to our final question here. It comes into our inbox and says, the Bible says Jesus went through what we go through. And I assume this is about levels of anxiety and abandonment more than him going through, obviously, the specific situations we go through. However, what about when it comes to purpose and direction? We as people can struggle with finding purpose or to see the right way to go when making a tough decision. But didn't Jesus have purpose and mission locked down from the get-go? I know he doubted it in the garden, but he still knew what he had to do. I think it's a very, very interesting question, uh, and when we I had a lot of fun thinking through with our friend who wrote it in, and uh, I was so overwhelmed by it, I thought I'm going to make these guys answer it too because that's my <laughs> sense of humor. So, but again, another great question, Glenn. Where would we started off?
2: Well, it's a great question, as you, as you say. I, I I like this. It's it, it's really. I think demonstrating that people who listen to this show are are not content to just kind of take the you know the standard line on things and they're not content to kind of be spoon-fed uh things instead they're looking at things from different angles and and asking really tough questions I think that makes you our listeners really amazing and um, and so keep that keep these questions coming in. I, I do want to start with this uh, that uh, you know, I think it's a, it's tough for me to answer any questions about what's going on in the mind of Jesus. I'm I'm not entirely holy enough to 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 you know gather what that is. I can try and answer that kind of theologically, but I don't I don't think you're really asking a theological question here. I think you're. You know, you're really asking about what's the what's the experience like of, um, struggling to to you know find your purpose and your calling, and then, you know, is that something that Jesus really could identify with? But the way I would approach this, and I I, you know I don't want to try and change the channel on you at all. I but I do want to kind of come at this at an oblique angle, and I would say that. I don't think that finding your purpose in life and your mission and so on and so forth, uh, uh, and I think uh, we've talked about it in the podcast before. I think calling, finding our calling, our, our mission, our purpose—that's sort of an ongoing thing and a developing thing. So, you know, I think that's meant to be sort of a daily struggle of Lord, what do you want me to do today? Mm-hmm. And you know, as we get a hold of that, you know, we just we just do what those things are. He, I don't think there's a lot of anxiety to that, but here's where I think the anxiety really gets deep, is when the Lord tells us, I want you to do this thing, then we do that thing, and it appears as though that is in no way going to work. Uh, I've experienced a lot of that, and that is really stressful. It's really a moment of, Lord, why did you get me into this? Why did you have me do this if it was only going to blow up in my face? Uh, You know, if you look at the life of Jesus, he was born in such a a, a way, he was born in circumstances where uh, he had to flee the country. He was a refugee in Africa and grew up there as as an immigrant refugee. That, to me, just, it's the kind of thing you got to— Imagine I'm going through all this, and at every turn it's i it, it, it would have to feel like this isn't working out you told me to do this, I'm doing it, but it just doesn't seem like there's anything's coming from that. That is where we get into that f word uh or the the other f word which is faith and uh that I think is where the, the struggle is. I think that's where the conflict is, and that's where we want God to understand the struggles that we have in accessing that faith and receiving that faith and exercising that faith. And I think it's worth really taking some time for us to all acknowledge, based on this question here, that the spiritual realities of what God's telling us about the world, about future events, about our purpose and our calling and all that. That whole spiritual world is one thing. The physical circumstances we're in are a totally different thing. And mm-hmm. most of the time, those don't match up hardly at all. And there's always going to be a tension on that. There's always going to be a stress on that. And that's that's always going to be a thing that you need to negotiate with God and say, do you get how crazy yeah. this looks and feels to me right now, Lord? And to recognize that Jesus did experience a lot of, this doesn't look like it's going to work out. Uh, If you reread the Gospels, you'll definitely get a sense of, this looks like it was going to be over before it got started, Uh, and yet here we are. So I I think that's where I would start, and I'll let these other fellows kind of uh, dig deeper on it.
0: An excellent place to start. And Lee, where do we take it from there? Yeah, it's so funny, because when I first read the question,
1: I, I was... I was thinking, well, you know, it says that he's been tempted in every way and and yet didn't sin and I started kind of typing out some notes about that and then and then I did remember uh that just that that supper on that last night where he he told his guys and I quote from the gospel that he said I am distressed to the point of death. This was like their dinner time conversation. He was like he, he had so much anxiety that he felt like he was going to die from it. And later that evening, as you pointed out in the garden, I mean, he was sweating blood. Um, I, I've never personally had, like I've never had stress that deep where like the, the capillaries of my skin burst and my sweat was mingled with blood. Um, I mean, like he experienced this thing. I, and so I, I don't know. It's a, it's a really interesting question. I, I, I want to, take a bird walk from what Jesus's emotions were like for just for a second and I'm, we're going to come back to him but i don't know um how old you are or if if you've if you've if you've already finished college and all that kind of stuff then i know that you've experienced this situation which is you're either in your last year of high school or you're beginning university or something like that and you have to go back home to like the you know like a family gathering or the people that you grew up around maybe in church or something like that And some adult says to you, what are you majoring in? And what they want is for you to have everything nailed down right now. And that is such, (laughs) I remember getting that question and wanting to look at people and say, I don't know. I don't know. Lay off me. Every single adult I see asks me the question, what are you majoring in? I'm supposed to have my whole life figured out right now how many children we're going to have, what kind of house we're going to live in. It's like it was just there was a thing that I always felt like adults want you to have no loose ends or frayed edges. They want you to have a clear and perfect. Purpose. They want you to have the whole thing nailed down right now. And I remember being really stressed by that. It's one of the reasons that I, I don't like to ask college kids that question if I can possibly avoid it. If they start talking about it, then we'll talk about it. I usually try to ask them like, "What music are you into right now?" or something like that. If they're they're home from college or whatever. Um, I say all that to come back to the fact that we have in Jesus someone who knows what deep distress feels like, someone who knows. Um, even though he did have a clear purpose and a completely clear calling, someone who knows the feeling of "I don't want to do that," I I, I don't know how to theologically. I, I'm like Jed, like delving, or I'm like Glenn here, delving the, the into the depths of the mind of Jesus. I, 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 there's no possible way I can I can map that out for you. All we have are these words that that he that he felt distressed to the point of death, and you know like when when you're in a world where everybody above you wants you to have the thing perfectly nailed down and figured out and 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 ironed out and your path is clear and that whole deal isn't it nice to know that the one that's always with you that you can pray to whenever you need help is somebody that would say to you i know what it feels like to to have a lot of distress and i know what it feels like to to know I really don't want to do this thing I have to do right now. Um, that to me is a very, very comforting thing. Um, I, I don't know that I can speak to all of Jesus's emotional states or anything like that, but it's a comforting thing to know that that the one that I pray to is... is um, he's cool with the fact that sometimes we lose that purpose. Sometimes we get anxious. Sometimes we get distressed. Sometimes we don't want to do anything that we have to do. And he understands how that feels. And that to me is a super, super comforting thing.
0: Absolutely. I think that's an amazing place to take that. And Jed, I'd love to get you to close this out by maybe looking at another angle of this. as these guys have pointed out, well, we can't really get in the, the mind of Jesus to know how he felt about things like Purpose and about calling. But as our question asker very astutely points out, we know he had it and he knew he had it. So maybe we can learn something about purpose and calling about the way he acted as someone who knew he had it.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. So one of the things that Jesus said about himself, about himself, one of the things that Jesus said about himself is, uh, I have not come to be served, but to serve. Mm. And I think that if you are this has been true in my own life. I think if you're trying to figure out some things related to purpose in your life, I want to encourage you to start that journey by serving others. I think that that's where it's really going to begin to, to get some traction. Again, it's been true in my life and I think it's very true to the example of Jesus. So right where you are in your normal life, um, find some way to serve other human beings. You get bonus points. If you find ways to serve them in ways that are practical and that meet, you know, like a, a need that they have and you get huge bonus points. If you find a way to do that, where you are physically with them in some way as you are doing that. Um, so let's review that for a second. Um, all, all of us on this show rely on, um, uh, giving and donations from others in order to be able to do the work that we do, and uh, we have said many, many times, and it is 100% true, that folks that, that give to the work that we do are just as much a part of this work as we are, and that is 100% true. Uh, it will always be true, and we are super, super grateful, but we're not talking about that here today. We're talking about, for you, just an internal sense of, of purpose, and I think you're going to start to dial more into that by you concretely, you finding ways to serve other human beings. And again, I think you're going to see it have more of an effect on you if you're doing it in practical ways. And I think that you're going to see even more uh, of an impact on you if you are doing it in practical ways where you are physically there with them. Now, what exactly that's going to look like. There's about a million different variations on that. That could be serving at um, a homeless shelter. That could be serving at a soup kitchen. That could be being a part of, you know, Boys and Girls Club or Big Brothers Big Sisters. There's a lot of different ways to do that. But I think the thing that you're looking for is – um Something that, that – it's not that like you you go and you you do the service opportunity and suddenly the clouds part and a light shines down from heaven and it's, you know, this is what I will now do no matter what from now on. But you're looking for a sense of a spark inside of yourself, just a sense of I like this. I I like who I am when I'm doing this. I like – how it feels when I'm doing this. You you may have been around church stuff before that, that tells you it's, it's not about you. It's about his glory. And it's eh, forget all that for a minute. Focus on what this does for you internally. D- does this, yep. even in little ways, does this bring you to life? Even in little ways, does this feel like there's a, a spark of, man, I just, I like doing this. And I like, I like how it feels. And I like the way that it works. I I, I like, I like what this is if you if you find something that gives you that sense of spark then follow it take keep keep doing it but give yourself the freedom to kind of explore the space and and figure out you know what what can i do kind of around this what are the what are the options but letting that be a a journey of discovery that starts with focusing on serving other people and then uses as a barometer to what extent is this bringing me to life to what extent is this helping me feel switched on you know as as a person and as a follower of jesus i think that if you do that i think that that is one of the best tools we have available to begin to dial in a sense of purpose in our lives um there are other things that, that, can, that can dial in a sense of purpose. Those are good, too. But but this is a particularly potent one, and it's one that I I know from my own life makes a real difference. And again, I think that we see this focus on serving others and serving them in practical, proximate ways lived out directly in the life of Jesus.
0: All wonderful stuff from all of these guys. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com, slash ask if you want to keep that entirely anonymous. I want to say another big thank you to Sarah Zylstra for joining us and talking about her new book, gospel bound. You can find more from us at mission com slash bridge And every Sunday night, facebook.com slash bridge Chicago for the bridge live. We're going to take out the song. We were talking about first John four earlier and we, the, our own pool house guru.
4: Yeah. Did his own Ooh. take
0: on first John four 19. We'll take out that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. To so say that podcast. Eh. That's it.
4: You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs)